0: So I guess you know today is Thanksgiving, which uh, in this country is one of the... uh, It's kind of a big feast holiday, sort of a harvest festival. Um, But literally, I am purporting to be about what the word says, Thanksgiving. And I know in my um, kind of upbringing and generally moving around the world, it seems... Sometimes the Thanksgiving part is sort of lesser, and it, it just becomes a time to get together, and I guess the guys watch football <laughs> <the afternoon. laughs> I just heard something on the radio some, some commentator bemoaning that he didn't really like Thanksgiving, because all people did was get together with your family who, you, who gets on your nerves, and then watch football I thought that was really sad Um, so anyway maybe Michelle mentioned this in her talk on gratitude but something that I find very um, energizing and really helpful is to just take a few minutes and consciously reflect on all the things I have uh, to be truly grateful for Uh, even I don't have to be feeling gratitude at the time, I could just it doesn't really matter what I'm feeling. And just bring into my heart what I feel grateful for and there's always so much more than I would have expected and things that I hadn't even been thinking of for ages come popping up and um, I find it really quite uh, faith-inspiring and energizing because it in no way uh, belittles the sorrow or the sufferings or difficulties that we experience. You know, that sense of, well, I have all this to be grateful for, so I have no right to suffer uh, about whatever things we're suffering about here, small or large. But it's quite the reverse. I find the gratitude opens up a sense of faith and connectedness that lets me bring more um, openness and compassion to my suffering and sorrow rather than, you know, thinking it should go away. So anyway, I just offered that if you feel so inclined. And we have a few moments for questions if you have any. Really, this is a time for questions about our practice here, what's coming up here, because this is where we are. <laughs> yeah. question is about feeling tone. When mindfulness is strong and pure, are there pleasant and unpleasant experiences or simply neutral? I, I think that's an interesting question. Um, interesting because I would, from my own experience, I would reply that I still find pleasant and unpleasant experiences but so toned down, so to speak, because there's no reactiveness of mind that uh, it does, for me, tend to merge towards neutral, sometimes hard to even tell. Um, but what I think is interesting is, again, this is from Ajahn Buddhadasa, and he does tend to sometimes go his own way in interpretation. So, uh, But I found this interesting. He was speaking about this, the dependent origination and the point of contact, giving rise to feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, and that leads into the craving and clinging. And he claims that if we're very mindful and meet the experience right at the point of contact, that pleasant and unpleasant feeling does not have to arise. So I'm sure he's talking from his experience, and he even acknowledges, you know, a lot of people don't believe him So I'm not saying that's what we should practice or look for or expect or evaluate our practice by. But I just offer that as uh, another opinion from someone who's quite learned. What determines whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, the nature of what is felt or the nature of the knowing. Uh, I think it's said to be karmic. Um, that for instance, one experience, say a sound, could at the same moment be experienced by one person as pleasant and by another person as unpleasant, or by the same person as pleasant one moment and unpleasant the next moment. So the nature, not the nature of the knowing per se, which is just pure awareness but the karmic conditions that are coming together at that moment. It's a really subtle and interesting subject, just to explore. Don't set up a view, you know. You're doing good if it gets more neutral. Please don't. But but, uh, just keep looking. Yes, Janet. Janet. To me, that feels like a full moment, like a complete moment. And what feels empty to me are those times when I see that the fifth time I get strung out in an idea and then the pleasure of it goes away and I just see how empty pleasure is because there's no
1: substance to pleasure.
0: Could you all hear her? To me, it's, 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 it's one of the reasons this is hard to talk about because we get caught in semantics um, and no word covers all the different aspects or manifestations of this. So, um, yes, I do often experience or could say the emptiness when it's empty of the clinging or grasping of self Also, there's alertness. There's wisdom in mind. It's not, you know, deluded, zoned out. It is also. It could be fullness. It's a total completion, inner completion, contentment. Nothing outside or extra is needed. Nothing to push away. Definitely, emptiness might not work for you as a word. It's just a word, but uh, we just use emptiness as empty of sense of self and. The way you also were using emptiness, seeing the emptiness of phenomena, is another aspect of it. That I didn't talk so much about last night, but seeing the emptiness of pleasure. Or the emptiness of anything that we cling to because it's ephemeral and vanishes. The illusory nature, so to speak, of all experience because it all goes that there's nothing to cling to is another aspect you could say of of emptiness of selflessness because there's nothing uh, unchanging and self-referencing in any experience at all so that's why it's it's uh it's hard to talk about there's no way i th- i personally feel there's no words to use in any aspect of trying to speak about Uh, the truth, or whether it's emptiness, or selflessness, or the illusory nature of phenomena, whatever. There's no words that can hold it all because it's beyond words and concepts. So we just try to patch it together the best we can and maybe, you know, point our uh, awareness beyond the concepts. So it's tricky. Yeah, in the chair. Um, so,
1: if being mindful that, you know, we mindful that and that we would choose, if, and
0: we have to make choices in the world, but does that mean we that more neutral? Would we choose experiences that are more neutral if we're mindful? I don't necessarily think so. Um, that's like saying that somehow neutral is better than pleasant or unpleasant. Again, that's setting up particular thing is better than another. For me, I find choices when I'm mindful, and there's some wisdom, come more out of a sense of the totality of the situation and what's most helpful or appropriate. Not so much about whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. That's sort of not the issue. It's about what seems appropriate. Sometimes what's appropriate might also be very pleasant. Sometimes it's not. That's sort of not, just not how the decision is made, at least in my experience. Okay. Um, Have an whatever kind of day you have. (laughs) Just know it for what it is with mindfulness. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) You could all hear that, questions about eating. Some magic trick, other than paying attention and noting what happens. Would that there was. But uh, You're right, eating is um, an extremely, uh, sometimes very intense uh, activity during the day for many people. It often comes up in interviews um, a whole range of stuff can go on, so as I'm sure you all know. Um, there really isn't a magic trick, but part of it is, uh, I find, to go into the, to the cafeteria, first with a sort of, I set my intention, okay, let me really explore what goes on. Not an intention to somehow change like I know often some of the difficulty that comes around eating is people either think they're eating too much or too little or uh, wanting to have less greed or judgment or whatever. So it's sort of a setup before going in. I want to have less of this or more of that. And the eating experience becomes a struggle before it even begins. So it's kind of a combination of going in with the intention to be mindful but also that means acceptance, just the clear being with what is without necessarily trying to change a real acceptance. And then I find in eating, uh, as in all activities, all large activities through the day, that the precise mindfulness, for example, standing in line, really feeling your body, use the body sensations to come back to So standing in line, really feeling the body, really uh, grounding in your, the reaching in the arm. And you can note these, reaching, reaching as you reach for the plate. You know, touching as you touch the coldness of the plate and move it back. That helps to stay grounded in the present moment. And in that, if I'm touching the plate, I'm standing And a lot of thinking starts. I see myself leaning forward, wishing the people ahead would hurry up. You notice that more. If you're grounded in just the sensations of standing, you notice when you start to lean forward, when annoyance starts to arise. And rather than, oh, I'm bad, I should be a good yogi and be calm. Oh, annoyance, annoyance. Come back and feel the sensations of annoyance in your body. Notice the thoughts. Notice the seeing contact that gives rise. Seeing, it's unpleasant. They're going to slow annoyance. So you can get closer and closer to the sense door contact. That's the kind of precision aspect of mindfulness. But in a situation like the dining room, we also need to bring in clear comprehension, the uh, the other aspect that goes with mindfulness of being aware of the totality of the situation. So sometimes you'll see someone going through the line looking so perfectly mindful but so slow and there's 40 people behind them. It's not really a balanced mindfulness. Mindfulness needs to include clear comprehension of the whole situation. So it's like knowing when it's appropriate to go slow, knowing there's a whole situation. Then, when you get to your place, if you want to take two hours to eat and feel every mouthful, that's fine. So, it's kind of both of those. And you're right, when you're eating, lifting, you might feel lifting, and then 45 thoughts, you know, between lifting and swallowing. And we didn't notice chewing. Okay, when did you wake up? swallowing, right there, (laughs) note swallowing. Never mind the thoughts you missed. And if you somehow in the swallowing you're feeling really tense, somehow those thoughts you missed brought up a tension, then you notice tension. Right? Then you don't have to retrace it all, but start where you are and you notice tension, 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 you know, and just like that. It takes an infinite patience and not any expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A little louder, please.
1: <laughs> I mean, why does it get mentioned again and again if it isn't really relevant to our practice?
0: And how is it relevant to the Questions about rebirth and a kind of he gets obsessed, would like to believe it, doesn't really. Why is it mentioned so much if it's not relevant? Um... You probably should ask Joseph, because you might not have noticed, but I've actually never mentioned it. Um, (laughs) I don't mean to imply that I don't believe it's true or that it's not relevant. From my own experience, I can't remember my previous rebirth, and I don't know the next. So for me, it's on the level of a belief, deeper than a belief, I have a faith because it makes total sense, but I have no proof. And I can't offer you anything stronger than that. You're right, in some ways, if I, well, I do know, in some way I have a faith that we just keep going, that rebirth happens because um, it doesn't make sense otherwise. If I didn't believe that, it would be sort of completely nihilistic, you know—just do whatever you want, and this is it. You know, you've got to get out in this lifetime. Doesn't doesn't look good. From <laughs> me, I'm only talking from me. <laughs> 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 and um, I can experience karma within this lifetime, and it makes sense to me that it would continue. But I don't have proof for that. And as far as a belief goes, if it's, Joseph says, you don't have to believe it because believing anything is only a view. Views and opinions are helpful. At times. If we are attached to them, they're hindrances, they can block our freedom, our understanding. And if you're trying to, you know, create a view, that you want to believe, you know, because maybe it would make you feel better, that kind of wanting it is what's going to lead to the obsession of mind. You know, I don't think something as subtle as rebirth, we can just decide to believe it or not. You know, it doesn't work that way. Somehow the belief has to come out of a faith that is there, that arises from your own experience. An experience could be many different things. Um, so personally, I think if with rebirth or anything else you hear any of us say, if it engenders a lot of confusion in your mind, it doesn't mean it's right or wrong, but to try and think through it and can engender doubt. And a lot of, as you say, obsessive thinking. And that experience is not helpful. You know, doubt is a hindrance. And at that time, whatever it is, rebirth, karma, no-self, whatever it is, when the mind is caught in that obsessive thinking, or wanting to believe it, or hearing it's making us upset, at that time of obsession, it's not helpful to keep trying to figure it out. It's just turned into the hindrance of doubt. And so at that time, to really note it as doubt, wanting, obsession, whatever it is, Put it on the side. And many things, many doctrines, if I use that word, of Buddhism, that 20 years ago I couldn't relate to, made no sense. It was true, you don't need it to practice. You absolutely do not need any of these doctrines to practice. We only need to pay attention to what's happening right now. And out of that, understanding will come. You don't have to direct try to direct your experience to meet some doctrine you've heard us say. Forget the doctrines. Just bring all your attention to being with present moment experience, and understanding and freedom will come out of that. Whether or not that ever results in that you can take the view of rebirth and say, yes, this is true. Like, if you can leave that aside and just really be with your experience, I think the faith an understanding will come that will take the pressure off of, oh my God, you know, only this lifetime I've got to make it or bust. You know, a kind of deeper faith will come where you see that is actually an irrelevant thought in some way. Um, And that needs to come from, it will come from your own experience if you just keep looking. So, So noticing doubt, doubt, doubt for any kind of analytical thought can turn into doubt just notice that okay now's not the time and come back to this moment oh, okay it's time to for me to go talk and for you to go walk <laughs> Do you have any questions about your practice this morning? Yeah, The mind is really triggered? triggered. Out of, out of control. You mean like a lot of different things that happen, trigger the aversion. You, is that what you mean?
1: Mm-hmm. But still, it's, mm-hmm. it's going on and on, and it can last all, all day.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah. How do uh, you work with <laughs> a I forget it. It's painful. Yeah. Uh, if you couldn't hear the question, could you hear the question, how to work with a version uh, that seems to be quite strong, strong identification. A particular thing keeps triggering the aversion, uh, but there's a strong identification with it. Seeing it, seeing thoughts of being the victim, but still feeling really caught in it, uh, and it could last all day easily. Um, It's really suffering. Um, I kind of, when that's going on with me, or any particular thing that triggers us, and it seems to go a long time. It could be aversion, it could be sorrow, it could be greed, you know. Um, And we know we're seeing it on some level. There's some mindfulness, definitely, but it keeps getting triggered. I assume the trigger keeps happening over and over. Is that accurate? It's not like it happened once three weeks ago. At least the trigger might be a memory of what happened again, or something like that. That can you notice points where it keeps getting re-triggered?
1: Yeah, but
0: it's uh, sometimes it'll just be continuous. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, like it starts and you get in the aversion, and then the trigger happens again, and it just keeps going. Yeah, yeah, it's spinning out of control. Um, So I I try and come in on whatever level I can at a particular moment. It takes, I feel, a great deal of patience, uh, acceptance that this is happening, seeing if there's judging of oneself that this ought to stop, right? I'm seeing it, it ought to stop, which I find is one of the biggest kind of hooks that keeps it going for me, that on some level I think I'm seeing it it ought to stop. By this time in the retreat, enough already, you know. There's no excuse for this to be happening. <laughs> that, Yeah, something like that. Really notice that kind of adds on top of it. It's like aversion to the aversion in, you know, multiple regression. Um, and it's actually not the original trigger sometimes anymore, but these subtle, this shouldn't be going on, that's actually the, the, the aversion of the moment if you know what I mean. So, I try to come in with attention wherever I can. If it's only at massive aversion, then I do stomping aversion meditation, you know? Aversion, aversion, hating, hating. I hate everybody and everything. And just feeling that in my body. Very important to keep coming back to feeling the experience physically, if you can, in this moment. A hundred million times pull out of the train of thought, whatever it is, whether it's about the trigger, whether it's this subtle, why is this still happening, whether it's trying to analyze, all of which takes you out of it, and just come back and feel the aversion for the hundred millionth time. You know, I know this already. I don't need to feel it. No, feel it. That's what's happening. Land in the middle of it, over and over, with a real... As much as you can acceptance, this is just what's happening. Because what I find is the the more I can do that, the more I can accept the whole sordid train of events, the more I land in the middle of it over and over, I start to see what is actually the hook of identification. It might be that it seems the identifications to the whole story, but there might actually be one little piece of the experience that the sense of identification is really gripping around. It might be the unpleasantness of the trigger. The identification might be with a subtle thought, this shouldn't be happening. It might be with a view, my practice should be better than this by now. Um, It might be that the trigger elicits an unpleasant physical sensation that we don't quite notice and the aversion is actually being triggered over and over from the unpleasant physical sensation and we don't quite notice that. Did you see what I mean? There's lots of different little pieces but we have to start by accepting the whole thing is happening or you can't get to the more subtle levels of seeing the different component parts and where the identification comes. Well, I, I think with um
1: with me the, the acceptance is really no problem. As soon as I get my balance I try to just say welcome home. hmm mm-hmm.
0: That's great. No, yeah, we get caught in that view mm-hm, mhm-hm mm hmm mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Although, in some ways, I, would, I wouldn't say identification runs deep. I would just say it arises frequently, moment to moment. It's not some deep thing down there. It's just arising in a moment around a momentary experience. So, it's not that that's necessarily so hard to see. Actually, so for me, I'll just be, I'll see the thing that's really hooking me. I can see the different pieces, and then some piece comes up, and it's like, oh, I'm really angry now. I go, oh, uh-huh, that's where it's kind of poking at me. Just on that level, you know, it's nothing more subtle than that. Yeah. But you make a good point. We think mindfulness often means it should go away, and that's not the case at all. Yeah, thanks, Liz. Yeah. talk about
1: aversion to physical
0: I feel like hmm And then like there's a lot of fear around the hmm About aversion to physical pain and seems like there's fear around it at times, and as she goes into the pain, sometimes it gets worse, and she could stay with it, stay with it, but it just seems unbearable. Um, and, I mean, there's a lot of different ways in working with physical pain, um, and it's very important, as you said, to be not only aware of the physical sensation, but also of the mind's relationship to it. So, it's true. Sometimes when we move attention into an unpleasant sensation, it gets more intense. That's absolutely true. Sometimes that happens. And the point isn't to bring our attention to it, to make it go away. So we see immediately if that was our point, because as soon as it gets more intense, it's, oh, pull back, this isn't working. Um, So it's really important in working with pain to find a balance of being able to move into it very gently, with calm attention, simply because that's what's happening. Explore the sensations with a balanced, equanimous mind. But to notice when the mind is not balanced and equanimous, when there's fear, when there is aversion, when there's this kind of contraction, to be able to note and notice that, in fact, in the moment of the fear, that's the strongest experience, perhaps, not the pain. And they're two different experiences, although they go together. So really noticing the quality of mind that's with the unpleasant, difficult sensation. And I don't, it's not necessarily the most skillful thing to just stay with it, stay with it, stay with it. If we're staying with unpleasant sensation and the experience is this is unbearable, this is unbearable, I can't handle this. That's not mindfulness, there's a quality of real aversion, of contraction, of fear in that, which it's very important to notice and feel. And in fact, it might be helpful to move away from the pain, to reconnect with either your primary focus or hearing or something else that's happening, to re-establish a more balanced quality of awareness and then move back to the difficult sensation with a more calm mind. And you'll notice then, oh yeah, this is more equanimous. And you'll notice when the aversion starts to come in. Notice that, soften again. And I've had sittings where I could sit a long time with strong pain because the mind could go into it in a very calm way and not get really tight. The next sitting, the mind was tired. As soon as I touched the pain, it was like gritting the teeth time. And you could sit like that, gritting your teeth and hating it for an hour, but look at what's being cultivated in the mind. Is that mindfulness? Is it equanimity? Or is it a subtle aversion and willpower? You know, and that's not the point. The pain It feels like I can't move away from it because it's so Then it's either To keep playing, because you can often go into it, notice the aversion. You can back out and give it a bigger focus. You don't have to be precise when it gets tight. Really be within the field of the whole room, not even just your body, but the whole room. The pain is there, but there's this much more spacious quality of awareness that can help to ease it some. Back and forth with that, noticing the mind states. And of course, sometimes if it's at such a point that you just feel overwhelmed and moving would help, that could be an appropriate time to shift if that's done with awareness of the intention and quite mindfully. So it's a a process of balance. And for all of us, there's times where moving doesn't help, the mind is tight and constricted, trying to open up doesn't help, and we're, you know, we're in aversion. And that's our practice. At that moment, there's no, you know, it's it's going back and forth between it all. Okay, um, time to walk. Thank you. Have any questions this morning about practice? Baba? I'd just like you to comment about
1: stomping. On Wednesday
0: you mentioned it. at the beginning of... About Stomping. She wants me to comment about stomping. And uh, also at
1: the beginning of the the retreat, you mentioned about going out into the woods when you were very angry one time and uh, stomping up and down. Uh And you described
0: it as unscathful. Did I? No, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Uh, She said, I mentioned early in the retreat. This is really bad stuff we mentioned early in the retreat, (laughs) just remembered and commented on... (laughs) I mentioned stomping up and down in the woods when you're angry, and she says, I said it was unskillful, which I, I don't think I would have meant. I certainly wouldn't have meant it was unskillful. Um, is that the question?
1: Yeah, because um, I, mean, I, I see physical expression of strong emotions being a very, I mean, not directing it as yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, but as being um, very clear, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and actually
0: moves it out of the body as so mm-hmm. the connective tissue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, she sees moving physical expression can be helpful. I certainly never meant to say, I don't think I would have said, that stomping in the woods when you're angry is unskillful. When I've mentioned stomping meditation, so to speak, it's really, I mean it, when there's the feeling of anger, for example, is so strong that trying to sit or walk very slowly downstairs just feels like the energy is so strong. It feels as if you're going to explode or scream or do something unskillful around a lot of people, you know. So, I mean, I've practiced it myself where I go off where no one's around and I really am stomping up and down and I am aware of anger. You know, there is a modicum of mindfulness there, you know, in a broad sense. You know, not like, notice the you know, perception that gives rise to unpleasantness, that gives rise to anger. We're not on that level. But, but there's a feeling in the body that's unmistakable, and I feel my foot hitting the ground. You know, you're present, and anger, anger. And I just might be stomping, screaming inside, anger, anger, anger. And, you know, it uh, calms down a little bit. So that's what I mean. By stomping and I don't think it's unskillful. It's much better than just imploding and trying to pretend you're sending loving kindness, you know, to all beings. It's like just acknowledge what's happening. And uh, sometimes I do find it useful to move the energy. It's so big there's no choice, you know, so we walk more briskly, go where there's no one around. Yeah. Trish. And I have actually seen people too where it has Yeah, yeah. Trisha's question that follows on this, talking about how uh Thich Nhat Hanh will say that um, by expressing, this is her interpretation of Han, eh? by expressing, by expressing anger, is sort of watering the seeds and it gets stronger and stronger, um, which I would say is true, and I would make a distinction between the two things we're talking about here. When I talk about stomping, as I said, it's still with some mindfulness. I'm not stomping saying, right, that person who made me angry is wrong, I'm right, let's get it going, let's do something. That is nurturing the seeds of anger. That's caught in the story, identification with wrong or right or I should be angry, or hating yourself for being angry, and it's expressing it physically, but not with mindfulness, with feeding it, and I would call that watering the seeds of anger, and I've seen that in myself, or one time I remember on a retreat, I was very angry at someone, something that happened, um, and I just you know, feeling the anger, it feels mindful, but there's real identification. I just kept going over the story and yeah, I should be angry, and that was wrong of him to do. And, and at one point I noticed the anger was just getting stronger and stronger each time that I, you know, recommitted committed to the fact that, yeah, I was right to be angry. You know, <laughs> I deserve to be angry. This was really a rotten thing to happen. That's definitely watering the seeds of anger. I could feel it sprout. Stomping is like it's bringing mindfulness in on whatever level we can but to the experience of anger itself. Yes, anger is present. Don't pretend it's not present. That's not mindfulness. Thich Nhat Hanh also says you have to treat your anger with gentleness, with kindness, like a younger brother or sister. You can't treat your anger with violence. Yeah, there's always there's something for both sides, but it's to find the balance in mindfulness of truly acknowledging what's happening with total acceptance and nonviolence. If anger is happening, we need to truly acknowledge it. We can't pretend it's not there. But with mindfulness, simply acknowledging anger itself, its presence, its physical expression in the body, the pain. The images in the mind that's happening in this moment, but feeding it, watering it in the way Thich Nhat Hanh spoke of it, is getting really identified with feeding the story, keeping it going, acting it out, and then actually doing something out of the space of yes, this is justified, you know, or it's not. I hate myself, and so you know, we beat ourselves for anger. Do you see the difference? One is bringing in mindfulness in whatever way we can, precise or huge, doesn't matter. The other is just diving into it and saying, yeah, let's really get going on this anger. And it's our, it's our delicate balance in practice. Not to suppress and pretend that something unpleasant isn't there, and not to really fan the bonfire, you know, and let it really take over. And it's a, a balancing act that we all are dancing all the time. Yeah, it's tricky. Mm. Lorna.
1: In your talk, she you probably answer this a hundred times, and I'm ready to hear it. The about, when I awaken, I'm moving now. Huh? <laughs>
0: Nowadays now. We... It's possible, Lorna, yeah.
1: something
0: goes <laughs> The question about awakening, is it a state, is it propped up, do we go in and out of it, are we awakened and we don't know it? Um, there's lots of different ways it could be answered, so I'm not, please don't think I'm giving a definitive answer to this. But there's a Tibetan saying I like, that it's easy to become awakened, but it's hard to stay awakened. <laughs> Sometimes I think it could be said like, first of all, not a state, not something to be maintained. That would imply a conditioned state, that if you set up the conditions, you can hold those conditions, and that state will stay. Forget it. There isn't any such of a state. Um, there's nothing, in a way the whole talk about becoming enlightened can imply we're going somewhere and when we get there, plop, here we are, all the work is done. And, and when you read the suttas, the arhats seem to be in that state. Perhaps so, none of us here are there and it's uh, not a sense of anyone I have met that they feel that their work is finished, there's no more need to practice, I've got it, you know. Um, My experience is much more on a much more different level from our hots. We won't even talk about it in the same breath. But a sense, not of some state to get to, but of a recognition of something, it's not even a thing, that is always true. Always uh, what we truly are, only we don't recognize it. The potential of recognition is here now, always. It's not somewhere else, it's never somewhere else. The whole problem with craving is that it takes us away from right here, which is the only place and time to, to recognize our potential of awakening. And I personally feel that that is possible in many moments, and we forget, we lose it, we can't remember. The times when there's an insight of anything, oh, that's so obvious, that's so true, we've all had that. I'll, I'll live like this now, forever, you know, it's so clear. And how long, you know, before the next kr- comes along? And even though it was so clear, we can't by will make it happen again, you know, so. That's the dance. I think it's the dance. The whole practice is one of constant re-recognition and letting go. But there's no state to maintain. Oh, there's a couple of uh, things we need to announce. I know it's difficult, 100 people living together in conditions that you do not personally control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Questions about th- thought and um, when you have one thought that leads to a whole series as they do and you wake up and find yourself at the end of the series, how useful is it to trace the thoughts all the way back to the first thought that triggered it? She finds it interesting. Uh, it can be interesting. if it's Overall, I don't know how useful it is. Um, I have found it at times interesting just to see how far we can get and how how really disconnected we are in our thoughts from uh, present moment experience. So, for instance, you know, finding yourself on the coast of Mexico and wondering how you got there, and tracing it back to the fact that you know my little finger is cold it can be interesting. You know, once or twice, just to see the way. Uh, things work in this world. Uh, Or if um, I'm waking up in the middle of something very emotional or difficult, sometimes to trace it back and see, oh, there's something difficult happening here and now, and I've projected it into this thing that happened ten years ago. That sometimes I find useful or interesting. Sometimes I really want to qualify it because it turns into a real... How can I amuse myself? It's sort of a mind game. Let's trace back all the thoughts, and it is—it is ultimately just more thinking. So I—I I would say with great caution. Occasionally, it can be useful and instructive. If you're doing it more than really occasionally, look at the motivation. You know, it's just another way to pass the time, sort of, and not feel the pain in the knee. Um, you know, so I would just check that out. And I don't think that's just earlier in the retreat. That's still happening, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 yeah Mark. You um, gave your
1: talk about, uh, I don't know what you gave your talk about, but you talked about <laughs>
0: Yeah, I wasn't exactly saying that. So we, yeah. we,
1: we project that we an image of something mm-hmm. rather than just the sensations. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Can I clarify? <laughs> something I said in an earlier talk uh, where I was speaking about the sensation, like sensation in the knee, but then also we might have an image of that. What I was saying, I, I didn't mean to imply that only because of the image of me is there discomfort or aversion or reaction. What I was trying to say is that um, yeah, there's sensation, unpleasant. Uh, we might be identified or the grasping of self might be around that sensation. What I've found for myself is quite often there is an image as well as the sensation that's fleeting or often not noticed and that the real, For me, the real identification that I might be calling identification with the body or that sensation is actually in that moment that the uh, contraction of sense of self is around the image. And I often don't notice the image. Um, <clears throat> I don't mean to imply that if you notice the image, that necessarily means there's no identification or reaction to the sensation either. Both could be, but that's
1: Mm-hmm. It kind of dissipates a little bit, but it just it felt like it was just back and forth and back and forth. And I'm wondering, um, is it useful to kind of go on that train? I mean, how, how um, not helpful is it to have the image as you know, in the hearing? It didn't, it didn't, it didn't feel like it was pulling me away from what
0: mm-hmm. was happening. It's kind of there, mm-hmm. present. Mm-hmm. So. Again, a question about... Uh, hearing and uh, the difference between just the sensation of hearing and the knowing it's wind and images of trees and snow. And knowing the image, coming back to hearing, is that basic going back and forth, is that a problem? No, it's just what's happening. I think the only reason it would so-called take us away to be in the image is if we don't realize it's seeing. And we're sitting here really thinking. We're in the trees and the snow, you know. But when you know, you know this is hearing... You know, this is seeing or imaging. It's like that's just what's happening. There's hearing arising. There's seeing arising. There's no problem. You know, one isn't better. Just as long as we know, what's what. You no, know, it's not a problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that satisfied me I thought that sounded pretty good I don't
1: know about it because <laughs> this means one thing is I think before I go to teach and report I have to do the work uh huh uh huh
0: He <laughs> doesn't like the discrepancy between precision and being more general. You notice you don't like it, right? You can notice. It, no. <laughs> <laughs> That could go with this. Um, I have to. The first thing that comes from out of me is uh, there isn't any perfect way, and it's all going to be precise, and it's all going to match up perfectly. And uh, if we could not really let go of thinking it's all going to be perfectly matched, always precise or always general or whatever, to try and Sometimes I think, this is my opinion, only my opinion, we can get a little sidetracked into trying to make the reports so precise and perfect that more emphasis can get put on trying to describe it accurately to the teacher. And it can, yes, it needs to be somewhat clear, but too much emphasis and energy and concern and desire can go into trying to make the report accurate. And I don't think personally, that that's as useful as being precisely with your experience that's where the understanding's going to come and I've found for myself there are times when you can but your first part of the question you can be with a sensation and you just know it's burning you know and you can tell it changes to tingling and you're not thinking about that so much, but there are times, as Steve said where You might almost be in a pre-verbal state where that part of the mind that's very verbal, very rational, you know, very adult, isn't working so well. And uh, maybe somebody noticed that during this retreat. And (laughs) when it's not, don't worry about you. To be really with the sensation, there's times I'll just note sensing, you know, because it's not worth moving away from the experience to try and find the perfect word. Mm-hmm. So if I'm in a state like that, first of all, none of us is upandita. We're not going like, to cream you for coming in and not describing whether you felt the sensation in the left nostril or the right nostril. You know, you could say, right? <laughs> And you can say, I felt I was with it, but somehow today the words were not clear. And that's actually a clear perception. When you can say that it's different from you come and say, well, I don't know, I, it was some kind of sensation, I don't know, I wasn't really there with it. Those are two different experiences, and you can describe that differently. It's not always going to be so precise. Um, and you don't have to then later make up some precise words in order to tell us about it if that isn't really accurate from your experience. Most important is to just try and convey your experience as close as you can to how it was at the time. Words will not always really be so accurate, you know, because we're really trying to convey something that's beyond words. Um, And in the same vein about the smelling... And the hearing. You're right, smelling and hearing is not that precise, but I think it's helpful because it is bringing our attention to the process, which is the point. So if I'm just noticing smelling, it's not as precise as acrid, bitter odor, you know, that reminded me of a chemical uh, explosion in the fourth grade. But it is more important to be with the Smelling aspect with the process actually a little less involved in the content is fine. It's just all that's really happening is the sixth sense experiences. So, so just resting a little more generally is really okay. It's really okay, and don't worry so much about we have to get it precise to describe it either to the teacher or to ourselves. Um, Sometimes the words aren't there, you know, and it's really okay. Okay, it's time to walk.